Stress and inflammation go together. Childhood trauma and inflammatory markers that continue to be elevated in adulthood go together. Inflammation in the brain and anxiety go together. Inflammation and depression go together. So the things that we can do across the board for our bodies that reduce inflammation to the lowest possible baseline levels are going to help us lower levels of anxiety right. and stress. Welcome to The Art of We, the podcast where we explore how committed partnerships can be potent vehicles for fully delivering our gifts to the world. Hi, I'm Krista Vanderveer, a seasoned consultant and executive coach. And I'm Dr. Will Vanderveer, a leader and educator in integrative mental health and wellness. As husband and wife and business partners, we keep learning that the key to maximizing our authenticity and impact in the world lies inside the health, security, and depth of our relationship. On this show, we'll pull back the curtains to share lessons, insights, and practices from our own marriage and professional careers that help us thrive. If you're a leader, founder, or overachiever, and you want to leverage your relationships for personal and collective growth, then you're in the right place. Hey, hey, welcome to our episode. We're so happy that you're here, and we are going to jump into anxiety. This is a increasingly common challenge. Totally. And especially increased during and after the pandemic. And we thought we would break it down and talk about some different types of anxiety and talk about some tools that can help reduce anxiety. Yeah. And we're really talking about the kind of, I mean, there's so many, there's probably lots of kinds of anxiety, right? On the psychiatry world. So the two that we want to focus on, we're going to call it attachment anxiety and BHAG anxiety. BHAG, big, hairy, audacious goal. Oh, audacious goal? That was big, hairy ass goal. No. No. (laughs) (laughs) Big, hairy, audacious goal. So if most of you are listening, might know about Jim Collins and his work. And (laughs) that's where we got that from. So why don't we, we'll dive more into what that means, but why don't we start with attachment anxiety? Right. So in our last episode, we were talking about these patterns from childhood and what we are able to perceive in terms of possibilities coming out of childhood with the kind of patterning which came out of the kind of relationships we had as children, usually with our parent, but it could be another caregiver who was really involved. And so studies have shown that more than half of the population have what's called anxious attachment. So I am a a card-carrying member of that group. Oh, you are? I am. Nice. I haven't seen that card yet. I'm sure you have. (laughs) (laughs) And so we're going to talk about where that comes from briefly and, you know, what we can do about it before we talk about the other type of anxiety. So what, what is the anxious attachment? So anxious attachment, I'll just leave it in terms of two main categories. So the first kind is called ambivalent attachment. So this is the person like myself who wants a lot of contact in my relationship, but I also don't want a lot of contact in my relationship at the same time. Right. So this is a lot of fun to be around. (laughs) It's a little delicate to navigate on both sides. And then the other typical type of anxious attachment is called avoidant attachment. And this is the one who doesn't necessarily want to be alone, but doesn't also want too much closeness. So it's a person who is more inclined to feel invaded Mm. or flooded, 
too much contact is mm. the concern for the avoidant anxious attached person. Okay. So the ambivalent attached person is more concerned about abandonment and the avoidant person typically is more concerned about too much contact or invasion. But then there is one other type that basically invades. The other type is called disorganized attachment, which is a more severe form of the ambivalent type attachment. Okay. This is a person who, because of a more traumatic experience in childhood, can't tolerate very much contact, but is very desperate to have contact. And so the disorganization is a description for kind of falling apart or fragmenting. So it's a, it's a much more difficult situation, we could say. So, And the reason why we're bringing this up is because, is it fair to say that everybody has attachment styles? Yes. And if we're not really conscious or aware of our own attachment style or our partner's attachment style, it can get really challenging and hard when many circumstances arise, including I need space or wait a minute, I need you or like there's a weird kind of murky area where there's different needs. Right. And it's hard to figure out how to navigate that with different needs. Absolutely. So then you and I, just bringing it back to you and I, we can get our attachment styles kicked up and anxiety can come up in different ways based on our attachment styles. Exactly. Exactly. So, you know, what often comes up for me in my attachment style with you is I look at your face and I see an expression that I interpret as disappointment or hurt or anger or something that more often than not is not accurate in terms of what's really going on for you. Right. And what happens for you when you see that, when you see, perceive my look as what you just described? Well, I get scared and... If I'm on top of my game, I mobilize the practice that we have agreed to of actually asking the question, are you, I see an expression on your face, are you feeling X, Y, or Z? Right. And so that's what happens on a good day. On a bad day, I might ruminate about what I see on your face without even telling you that I'm concerned about it. Right. And what it feels like over here is that you go away. There's like a level of disconnection that I don't understand. And then I go into my attachment stuff, which is like, hey, like, where are you? Like, I need you. (laughs) Like, feeling alone over here. Right. And then I probably go into, like, getting over into your world, like, way too much as a way of being like, are we okay? And Mm -hmm. Yeah. So this is the pattern. This is the pattern. And we're on top of it, which is good. And we can talk about it, which is great. And I would say in previous relationships where I didn't have the language, it could become really messy and hard and challenging and lonely. Yeah. This can be a really painful dynamic between people. And, you know, fortunately there are more advanced tools available now than there used to be in terms of understanding the kind of owner's manual of our partner and understanding what their attachment pattern is can be so helpful just around how to uh, relate to them and how to bring more care and compassion, but also how to get the kind of contact and relationship that we want to have inside of these uh, very deep old patterns. So for us, I would say we're doing better and better at having a conversation, like you just said, rather than making assumptions or going away from each other or me like over contacting you. We're getting better at that. And I'm just wondering if you have a book recommendation 
for people who are interested in going deeper into this to figure out what their attachment styles are in relationship? Well, I think there are so many good ones. Stan Tacken's books are some of my favorite. This is Your Brain on Love is a good one. We Do is another one about making commitments with each other. And he that, goes into attachment styles. Yeah. Um, you can also access Stan Tatkin videos on YouTube as a first step to go and learn about these attachment styles. He's been uh, a guest on our podcast, and he's also been a guest on Jason Gaddis's podcast. That some really good conversations with Jason about these attachment patterns. And just when you said our podcast, not the Art of We, but on your business podcast, right? Which you can share the name of that podcast. A higher Practice Podcast. Yeah, yeah, and that's with Keith his business partner and him. And yes. it's a great podcast to so check it out. So why don't we go into the other kind of anxiety? Well, there's just another um, piece I want to say about attachment anxiety, because you mentioned, you know, we're getting better at talking about it. Yeah. The other thing that I think we've gotten a lot of mileage out of is bottom-up processing, or in other words, uh, relating to the animal body that gets activated in these moments of stress and attachment. So that's been a really big tool for us. Do you want to talk about that? <laughs> you probably have language to it. Bottom up. Are you talking about getting in touch with how you feel in our bodies? Yes. Yeah. And like what's actually happening in our body. Yeah. When so something happens. Bottom yeah. up doesn't mean that your bottom is up in the air. It means that, <laughs> <laughs> although that could be very nice too, but um, no, bottom up processing, we're talking about the brainstem and the animal part of our brain. Another name for it is the limbic system. It's a part of the brain that is unconscious, but it drives threat responses. Mm -hmm. And the top part of the brain, the human part of the brain is under the domination of the lower parts of the brain. So mm. when we try to have a conversation in the midst of feeling really stressed or anxious, sometimes that's not very effective. <laughs> Having conversation. Yeah. 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 When you're really stressed. Totally. And so, you know, the, the sort of the paradigm of let me go take a moment and gather myself and calm down and then we'll come back and talk. You can have a more effective conversation. Well, why don't you tell them about the practice of skin time or what, how we, um, how we regulate each other on the couch. So we shared this also in an earlier episode. So we'll just touch on it real quick is when we, it's interesting. I didn't know it was called bottom up processing. Thank you. When yeah. we, when we get into a state where one or both of us are dysregulated in some form, which means we're hijacked by our mind. We're feeling not as a team. We're feeling like against each other in some form or just super anxious. One of us will point to the couch and another of us might be resistant to do that or not. But we basically go to the couch. The more regulated person lays on the more dysregulated person. Mm -hmm. The body weight really has an impact. And we lay on each other until something shifts in the energetic and in the body, like a somatic shift. Yeah. Thanks for reiterating that for people who maybe missed our first episode. The other way this can happen, like in an airport, for example, is not necessarily lying down on the ground in the airport, which you could do, <laughs> but, um, you know, standing and hugging until you feel a shift in your breathing pattern. Oftentimes a deep exhale will occur involuntarily, mm. which could be a signal that you're parasympathetic nervous system, your relaxation response is starting to come online. So it's a good tool. It's a really us. good tool. And another one that we haven't practiced as deliberately, but we do it anyway, is, is like a, is we breathe together, whether we're hugging or we're laying on top of each other, is that like we breathe together. 
Right. And there's a way that somehow that connects us more deeply. And once we feel more settled, then we can actually have a real conversation versus one that's hijacked. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for bringing that up. So let's talk about the other type of anxiety. Okay. So the BHAG anxieties. <laughs> BHAG anxiety. Big, hairy, audacious goal, which if you're entrepreneurs like we are, likely you're setting really big stretch goals for yourself. And inside of those stretch goals, if you actually really see great possibility and you reach for it, a lot of stuff is going to get kicked up. Absolutely. So this comes into having a realistic expectation about what the experience of setting these audacious goals is going to be. Yeah. And if we accept and embrace that anxiety is going to come with just like French fries with a hamburger, it's going to come with (laughs) (laughs) the goals. Yeah. Then we might be a little bit less resistant to that anxiety, or we might have more of a sense of where is this coming from, which can also relieve some of the stress of that experience. Right. I don't know about you, but you could speak to this, but I, I know for me and a lot of the women that I work with, a big part of what gets kicked up when we set big goals is something called imposter syndrome which I'm sure the people listening to this understand what that is, is basically, who am I to do this? And that can kick up a whole set of anxieties and stressors in our individual, but then that comes back to the relationship and obviously impacts the relationship as well. Right. Or, you know, in our business partnership with Keith and Emma, you and Keith are in the day-to-day, you guys are doing so many things that prior to four years, neither of you have done. Right. And navigating and learning and growing and making mistakes and learning from mistakes. And so much of leadership development is about learning how to navigate what comes up in these new circumstances. Right. And I'm curious if you'd be able to articulate what's really helped you in the high stress, high growth years that we've had together to navigate what you're talking about with what comes, the burgers and the fries that come together. How do you... (laughs) Well, speaking of burgers and fries, when we set out to create an organization that we are hoping and it's kind of happening already is, you know, changing the world through education for therapists and doctors. I'd never run an organization like that. I'd never created or built an organization like that. I never had a business partner before. So it was a massive learning curve and a lot of anxiety around, like you said, imposter syndrome. Am I going to fail? If I do fail, is that going to be catastrophic for us financially? What are my friends going to think? I mean, there were so many things that came up for me. Leaving the world of practicing medicine directly, which I don't do anymore, and what that meant for me in terms of identity and the shift in identity. Um, So, so many different layers. And one of the things that I started to notice pretty quickly is that the ways that I took care of myself physically, medically, that got me to the point of launching the business were not adequate to support me to grow the business or to continue to grow as a person and be the person that I needed to be to continue to face bigger and bigger challenges and, and take on more risk and embrace more opportunity and possibility. So that led to this whole kind of remodel of how I take care of myself. And I was already a pretty functional, you know, seemingly 
relatively healthy person. But, you know, I was working with a lot of automatic patterns in my behavior. And in our prior episode, we were talking about automatic thinking, like these filters or ruts. And one of the ruts I was in was that high intensity, really hardcore mountain biking was really good for me. Mm-hmm. And the long story short is I came to understand that running my cortisol that high from my, riding my bike on, you know, pretty, could say intense trails, yeah. uh, a lot was actually not good for me. And I needed to completely change how I was doing my exercise routines. That's just one example of something that was on the chopping block for me to get from one place to another in my growth. But the crazy thing about that is that the bike riding served you so much and how you felt like it's right. almost like the oxytocin. Was it? <laughs> <laughs> oxytocin. Is that the same hormone that's released when you're bike riding or is it a different one? Uh, no, I think we're probably talking about endogenous opiates and okay. like the runner's high we talked about right. in the last episode. Yeah. So you got so much out of, I remember just yeah. how much you loved getting on your bike. And the crazy thing is that that wasn't actually supporting you to do what you needed to do in the world because it was too much cortisol. Right. So you had to do like a 180 and now weight training yeah. is actually what's supporting you. And the, since uh, January, February yeah. of this year you've been hitting it super hard and that's supporting you in a way that you never imagined. Totally. And the biomarkers are are showing that. And my experience is way less anxiety. And there, there are other things that we've changed as well, but coming into a, a four day a week weightlifting pattern, well, we can talk about how we track biomarkers and what's, you know, it's important to us yeah. in terms of looking at heart rate variability, blood sugar stability, hemoglobin A1C, which is an average of your blood sugar over the last three months. There's so many different sleep quality. Before we go there, I just want to say too that, you know, I had a pretty severe eating disorder growing up and that led to unhealthy patterns when I would take a BHAG Mm, mm -hmm. because it somehow like going into the anxiety of a BHAG or whatever I need to face for my own self there would kick up some of my old eating patterns And then that would kick up some of my own old anxious thoughts about body image, all the things. Yeah. And at the time I was also, my orientation was a lot of cardio. Right. And a little bit of weightlifting, but more cardio than anything. And since I've also changed my levels, like I still do both, but the levels are completely different. Yeah. My own body has a lot less stress and my old habits are hardly ever getting kicked up and old habits. I'm just like thinking like negative thoughts about myself and mm-hmm. my eating and my body and stuff like that. And so I just invite the audience who are listening. If you do have an exercise practice or if you don't just notice, how are you feeling about yourself and how are your anxiety levels and what are your practices and are they actually supporting your anxiety or are they maybe minimizing them? Just right. a look. Right. Right. So exercise obviously is a huge piece for us and the right kind of exercise, which I didn't know. I mean, as much as I know about treating anxiety in a natural way, I didn't know that I was hurting myself with too much stress hormone in the way that I was working out. We hope you're enjoying this episode. I want to take a quick break to let you know about a gift we created for you and your partner. We compiled our top 10 relationship agreements. 
agreements that have been so powerful in supporting the success of our partnership that we even turn them into our wedding vows. These agreements help us stay connected, growing, and thriving as a couple, and they've been critical to help us create a kind of we that's way beyond what we've ever experienced before. You can download this free gift at kristavanderveer.com. That's K-R-I-S-T-A-V-A-N-D-E-R-V-E-E-R.com. Also, if you enjoy our podcast, it would be so meaningful to us if you left us a rating and review. Not only does it help others find us, but it gives us critical feedback on how we're doing. Thanks in advance. And now back to the episode. So let's also talk about, because until I met you, I didn't really understand what some of these integrative methodologies, sure. integrative yeah, methodologies are for supporting mental health that, you know, there's the obvious ones, getting good sleep, exercise that we're talking about, eating well, but there's also other things that are less commonly known that can produce anxiety. Yeah, great. So that's a good setup for this kind of broader perspective about what is going on with anxiety. So the way I look at it is, um, to borrow a phrase from Buddhist training, there's necessary suffering and then there's unnecessary suffering. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, totally. Right? So necessary suffering is things like in Buddha Dharma, it's birth, old age, sickness, and death. You could maybe put BHAGs in there too, I would. Uh, So (laughs) the necessary anxiety that goes with living a human life and all the things that go with that. Unnecessary suffering is all the things that we do or the choices that we make, like me riding my bike downhill super fast on really gnarly trails, jacking up my cortisol and unnecessarily causing suffering in myself. Right. So these are the things that in medicine, we call them modifiable risk factors. So lifestyle medicine, choices we can make around diet, exercise, sleep, learning about what foods do what to us. And the through line in integrative medicine around illness in general, and I would say brain health specifically, is the through line around inflammation. And so stress and inflammation go together. Childhood trauma and inflammatory markers that continue to be elevated in adulthood go together. Inflammation in the brain and anxiety go together. Inflammation and depression go together. So the things that we can do across the board for our bodies that reduce inflammation to the lowest possible baseline levels are going to help us lower levels of anxiety and stress. So what are some things that we should be reducing? And some of these are kind of obvious, like sugar. Yeah. So obviously the number one thing is sugar. Yeah. Uh, It's so ubiquitous and, and it's highly inflammatory. There's a new definition of dementia, for example, that's re-categorized as type three diabetes. Maybe you've heard of type one diabetes, which is the kind where it's genetic and you're born with it. Type two diabetes is the kind of oh, my blood sugar is now out of control because I didn't take care of myself kind of thing. Type 3 diabetes is like another level of that where your brain is not processing sugar anymore Mm. and you have insulin resistance in your brain. So anyway, the point being that getting a hold on our sugar intake is a massive win. Um, Massive. And one other thing that I learned about since meeting you, and also it's a little bit more in the mainstream now, which is the gut microbiome right and how 
that's really tied also to our mental wellness and mental health. Absolutely. Absolutely. And obviously a, a so-called, you know, modern diet or standard American diet is full of highly processed, refined carbohydrates, aka sugars, lots of empty calories with very little nutrition. And so many people live in so-called food deserts where you're not getting the nutrition, even though you're putting in a lot of calories. So, and eating a lot of sugar or drinking too much alcohol can also hurt the microbiome that you're talking about. So one of the big uh, hacks that we love uh, comes out of one of our buddies who's on the faculty at CU Boulder, Christopher Lowry. Chris, Chris Lowry. And uh, someone told me Chris has a YouTube video on this, so people can go look for that if they want to. What would they Google? Just his name or? Christopher Lowry Microbiome. He calls it microbiome. I thought he called it a slush or something. But Yeah, it's a, a shake or a slush. And the idea here in a nutshell is that... And we have his permission to share this. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah it's that a healthy human being with the right diversity of microbiome contents. Microbiome, we're talking about the bacteria that live in your gut. There's also a skin microbiome, but right now we're talking about healthy gut bacteria. needs to be highly diverse and um, getting diverse bacteria into your gut means eating a wide variety of different foods, mostly plants. So according to Chris Lowry, one plant species has its own microbiome of bacteria that live on the skin of the plant, whether it's a fruit or a vegetable or what have you. About 800 different organisms per plant species. So if you go to the store and you want to make your slushy, you go and you get a pinch of 25 different organic vegetables, minimally processed vegetables. Right. If at all, right? Right. Not Meaning uh, rinsed and raw, Okay. right? Mm-hmm. Rinsed with water. Probably not even chlorinated water, honestly. So filtered water, spring water. And putting these 25 vegetables into a blender with equal part plant matter and equal part water and putting them in, you know, blending it up, putting them in ball jars and ice cube trays and taking a tablespoon of this slushy every day to increase diversity of the microbiome. And if you're a nerd like us or even more like Chris Lowry, You'll check uh, highly sensitive C-reactive proteins serially as you do this, and you'll see most people are going to notice, you might not notice changes in anxiety per se, but your levels of inflammation if your gut bacteria is more diverse is much less likely to spike when you experience a stressor. Right. So we have enjoyed taking on the slushy and... Once you run out of the, you know, the fresh stuff, then you can go to the ice cubes and just put an ice cube in a water ball jar every day. And it's super easy. And I would say that around the food piece, I would also track noticing how you feel 30 minutes after you eat something. And at various times in my life, sometimes when I would eat something specific, 30 minutes later, I would go into a high level of anxiety or higher than I had before. Like stevia has done it to me before. For some reason, at one point, almonds did it to me. So that means that food can cause anxiety to me in my own experience. Certain foods can cause anxiety to certain guts. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, there are these reactions that people have and now we're talking about precision nutrition or what specifically are the foods that work well for you and your unique system versus somebody else. 
And that goes for carbohydrates too. I have a friend who put on a continuous glucose monitor and ate a good portion of brown rice and saw that her blood sugar didn't spike at all versus the next person who's going to have a massive blood spike, right. uh, blood sugar spike from that. Right. And so that's the beauty of these um, tracking devices that can actually help us really precisely home in on what it is that we should be eating personally. Right. And the reason why this feels so relevant for the art of we is because if we're not being responsible and taking care of ourselves, like you were talking about, you had to basically create a whole different kind of landscape to meet the challenge of the BHAGs. And if we're not taking responsibility for how we are, our mental wellness, our regulation, and especially in partnership, then it's going to be really hard to accomplish the goals and have the the kind of we that is extraordinary and can meet the purpose of why the two of you are together. Yeah, to fulfill why you're together in yeah. the first place. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And can I say one more thing about <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> I love talking about this. In addition to the food reactions that you're talking about of one that I want to name is gluten because uh, anxiety and gluten are often very deeply associated in my experience. Right, which both you and I have been off for like 15 or 20 yeah. years. Yeah. yeah, for sure. But in my work with patients, it was really remarkable how someone who, and I'm only talking about people with gluten sensitivity because there's a lot of people who don't have that. So this is not about like gluten's bad. It's like, it's just incompatible for certain people. When people stop eating gluten, if they're sensitive to it, anxiety can melt away. It's really quite incredible. So I just want to throw that out there. And then the other piece, before we let you go, <laughs> is an often overlooked biological cause of anxiety is low blood sugar. Okay. Oh, good. So low blood sugar is a phenomenon that often follows high blood sugar. So it's kind of like if you've been around a three or four-year-old human who got into some sugar <laughs> <laughs> and they get very hyper for about five minutes right? <laughs> and they get crying. incredibly crabby and they're crying and having a tantrum. That's the sort of downfall uh -huh. after the blood sugar spikes, it goes down. And so there are huge numbers of people who have these low blood sugar events that feel like true mm. mental health crises, like wow. panic attacks, anxiety attacks. And so again, just another hidden gem in terms of looking at these biological hidden causes of anxiety. And so, you know, the answer for dealing with low blood sugar, I mean, first of all, it needs to be diagnosed accurately, which you can do with a lot of different ways. But the solution would be to eat snacks throughout the day, make sure you're getting protein and high quality fat snacks and not sugary snacks. <laughs> right. And you know what? That's actually kind of hard inside of the some of the hyper on keto and fasting. And, right. you know, sometimes we can think that maybe something will be good for us because it's popular. Totally. And all the people are saying, this is the cause of all the things if you don't do this. But then for the individual, you really have to pay attention and know what's right for you. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Well, we hope you enjoyed this episode. We'll see you in the next one. Thank you so much for joining us. If you found this content valuable, please follow this show and share it with your partner or other key collaborators. If the show sparked an interesting conversation based on these topics, we'd love to hear from you. Find us on Instagram at Art of We Podcast. And we'll see you next time when we explore what it means to be better together, like butter and toast on the Art of We.